today on Ag News Daily. It's an advantage that I personally take a lot of time going around the world talking about the benefits of buying U.S. soy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 8th. We're kicking off the Iowa State Fair tomorrow. And Hannah, Mike, are you guys planning to be at the fair at all this year? I am planning to be at the fair. I have a little brother who's going to be showing some dairy heifers. So he shows Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So I will be there those days. Fantastic. And I will be there on Saturday for the Governor's Charity Steer Show along with some other competitors. Oh, like who, Mike? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I'm not sure. Nobody else that matters. Oh, oh, oh okay. Oh, like, oh. Yeah. Shots fired, huh, Mike? No, just kidding. The Governor's going to be there. She's pretty oh. great. Yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> what am I? Chopped liver? Uh, I don't know. Are you going to be there, Delaney? Uh, yes, Mike. I will be showing as well, and I'm going to beat you. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what the judges think. Yeah, we will. We're going to post about it on our social media sites. It's going to be the Governor's Charity Steer Show Showdown. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, folks, be sure to follow along with that. And actually, Delaney, can I jump into some news here? Because Showdown is kind of a nice segue. Okay. Let's hear it, Mike. Um, I am a Twitter addict, as all of you know, <laughs> and there was some news circulating on the Twitter this morning about a car chase down in Florida. Did you see this? No. Does this have anything to do with ag news? It does. Okay, so a woman and uh, two co- accomplices stole an SUV in Seminole County, Florida, and they took it on a joyride. Cops were chasing them, eventually crashed into a stop sign, and the thief ran out of the car and tried to escape on foot. And she jumped into a pasture that was full of cows. And these cows are about 20 of them, cows and calves in the pasture. They must be bucket fed. Because as soon as this woman jumped into the pasture, these cows started to crowd around her. And then they (laughs) followed her throughout the pasture. And that was how the police were able to find this woman was because they just followed the cows. Wow. Yeah. My ears aren't ever trained that well. Yeah, no, mine mine would have, uh, yeah, I'd run away from her and then, you know, probably tried to attack her. Yeah, she's lucky that didn't happen since she was in a cow-calf pen area, so. Right, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Well-trained cattle. So that was, I thought, just an interesting, uh, interesting jump into the world of Ag News. And, folks, there's a pretty cool video. I tweeted it. You can find it at Ag News Daily on our Twitter page. All right. I'll have to watch that. I haven't seen that yet. Mm-hmm. Well, Hannah, what do you have today for news? Well, I just want to, you know, talk a little bit about tariffs because the U.S. said it will begin imposing 25% duties on an additional $16 billion in Chinese imports in the next two weeks. So customs will begin collecting the duties on 279 product lines as of August 23rd. And the Trade Representative's Office said in a statement on Tuesday, yesterday, that the list will mostly consist of industrial products like polymers and chemicals, but it will also include some machinery parts such as pistons for engine tractors and then some cedars, planters, and irrigation systems. So it looks like in the next two weeks we're going to have another round of tariffs on us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and- I think... So the way I understand it is this $16 billion is the the proposed tariffs that President Trump 
suggested back in June. So we have the steel and aluminum tariffs. Those were first. Now we have these uh, tariffs, which is the Section 301 tariffs. I think it's going to hit about 279 of the 284 originally proposed tariffs. So this is really the first round of tariffs besides steel and aluminum to go into effect as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Although, no, I think because we put tariffs on Chinese products on $50 billion worth of Chinese products back in early July. July. Yeah. Okay. So, so those this did is the go into second effect. round. Second round. Okay. Yep. And yep, right. we also, today, China announced they are going to reciprocate on the exact same day, August 25th or 23rd. Um, they are going to go ahead and implement $16 billion worth of tariffs on a number of U.S. goods going into China. They're looking at a fuel, steel, a lot of uh, kind of bigger commodity products, and they are going to kick those right into place. They're looking at putting tariffs on about uh, 333 different U.S. products moving into China. Hmm. Well, I have an interesting I, yeah, piece of news, you could say, um, about kind of related to China so when we, tariffs when we look at soybeans in particular. And we're going to be having a really great conversation with Derek Hagwood, who's on the United Soybean Export Council board later in the podcast. So be sure to stay, stay tuned for that. But we've had Dr. Luis Rivera on, who's an economist from Texas A&M on the podcast before. And he has been studying Brazil's agricultural capacity on behalf of the USDA. He recently has been in Brazil and has been doing a study or working with farmers, talking to farmers down there to see if they think they will increase their soybean production. What was going on here with the U.S. and China uh, trade tariffs and trade wars. But a lot of Brazilian producers are saying that they don't see any potential to increase soybean production right away because they would have to expand infrastructure. Um, It would take higher production costs on their behalf. So most of the producers down there are saying there's really no benefit for them to do it at this point. So even prices haven't been relatively strong for them as well. So I guess that's a little bit of good news that we're not going to see Brazil try and expand that market share anytime soon. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, well, that is interesting. Well, Delaney, you said Texas A&M, correct? Yes, Hannah, that's it. Okay, so I have a story from Texas A&M. So some scientists there have been developing a weed-resistant cotton plant. Now, that might not make the most sense, but essentially these A&M scientists have successfully introduced a genetic trait that allows cotton to thrive in soil that has been enriched with phosphite, which is like the brother and sister to phosphate. It just has one less oxygen atom in this like chemical compound essentially and so you don't have to use traditional fertilizers and because that this plant has or this cotton plant has um, this genetic trait it can survive in harsher conditions and weeds that don't have that same trait essentially are starved out of the, the nutrients in the soil so essentially you don't have to use any like herbicides on it or anything like that and I don't know, when I was reading this article, it said the first, uh, the idea first came about because for decades, you know, the magical formula was to spray fields of plants that have been genetically engineered to resist herbicides, such as like Roundup, um, 
And then we would just watch the weeds die. But then over time and through nature, those weeds have started to mutate themselves and evolve so that they, too, have been resistant to the herbicides that were sprayed. So now the idea is to not genetically engineer the plant to be resistant to herbicide sprayed, but to make the plant be able to live in harsher conditions than what weeds can. So, boom, Mm. science. I think that's pretty fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. It's yeah, it's bizarre the way that that we can modify things and make things fit different environments. That's just it's very cool. I wish I were smarter and could get you know more into this stuff. Well, you could be if you tried. Well, I, I don't think you can just get smarter. It you know. takes all kinds of kinds, Mike. You know, I'm happy there are scientists out there who like that, and yes. you know that then it allows us to do podcast stuff because there's people Ab- out there who probably don't like doing that. Absolutely. There you go. Thank you, Hannah. It's uh what different different strokes for different folks, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I've got an update from a story that we've been following and Hannah's been following especially, which is the nuisance lawsuits down in North Carolina that have been pressed by neighbors of Murphy Brown Hawk facilities, basically a Smithfield subsidiary. And American Farm Bureau and the North Carolina Farm Bureau have just entered a court uh hearing to roll back the gag order. They say that the people who are most well-informed about these issues, manure handling, livestock smells, you know, what it takes to raise pigs, are the farmers themselves, and those are the folks that are banned from talking about this issue, and they think it violates the First Amendment. So we will see if this can get that uh, gag order rolled back, and we can maybe get a little more balanced reporting coming out of that uh, North Carolina area. Hmm. Why do they say it's? I don't get why it goes against the First Amendment rights. Because they're not allowed to talk. Okay. All right. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. About this specific issue. Right. Yeah. Issue pertaining to the nuisance lawsuits, and the Farm Bureau says, "Look, there's nobody who knows more about this stuff." than the farmers, and then the North Carolina Farm Bureau says, hey, we're a grassroots organization. We can't shape policy unless we can hear from our members who are hog producers who are placed under this gag order. So you've got to let them talk so we can continue to function as an organization. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, the next piece that I have for you guys is the USDA is investing – $345.5 million in rural electric infrastructure. So, Mike, earlier this week I talked about how the USDA was going to invest, I believe, $94 billion in rural broadband. And so this, I think, kind of goes hand in hand, but essentially they are just investing um, some money uh, and some infrastructure in to, you know, get some, like, smart grids up around different rural areas. Um, and essentially just get it so that way these rural areas can have the same capacity and electronic systems that, you know, urban areas see. But it's going to essentially be 20 infrastructure projects within 14 different states. And right. what was the dollar amount on that one, Hannah? So I originally thought it was just 34.5, but then I saw that the decimal place was wrong. And when I looked at it again, I was like, holy moly, but it's $345.5 million. 
Okay. Mm. Uh, you'd think that would be able to get some stuff done, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. I could figure out ways to spend $345.5 million. <laughs> oh, gosh. Mike. Well, well I could. Speaking, I'm just saying. Speaking of uh, government funding, the USDA's Risk Management Agency has approved the first-ever revenue protection insurance policy for dairy producers. I know we've got a couple mm. dairy producer listeners, so I wanted to make sure I brought this up today. The program will be set up very similar to how crop insurance works. Um, and you'll be pay, you'll pay in basically a premium that will be subsidized very similarly to how crop insurance works. And they worked very hard or worked, the USDA worked well or worked one-on-one kind of with the American Farm Bureau Federation and American Farm Bureau Insurance Services to help figure out how to structure this uh, premium, these premiums and subsidy money. Sign up for this will begin October 9th. And I want to make sure that producers know if you do sign up for this purchase revenue protection coverage, you can still participate in margin protection program. So you kind of have two options there, it sounds like, with this new program coming out. Hmm. Interesting. So you can kind of stack them on top of one another. Yes. Yep. That's what it sounds like. Well, good to know. We'll have I... to have somebody on here and discuss what that new uh, new program will look like. Yeah, yeah, and, and how folks, how often they'll actually get paid, because I know right. that's, you know, what matters. Mm-hmm. I just have one other piece of news, and it's something we've touched on a few times, and that is trade talks with Japan. Uh, tomorrow, we are seeing the Japanese economy minister is going to visit Washington and visit with Robert Lighthizer from the U.S., our free trade, uh, or our trade negotiator guy. And it's kind of interesting. I've been reading some of the releases from the Japanese government, and they're saying we do not want a bilateral free trade agreement. So their goal tomorrow is to try to find ways to work around it, and their long-term goal, Japan's, is to bring the U.S. back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They said we don't want to do a free trade agreement because we don't want to have to open up you know, the agriculture industry in Japan. So they're hoping to avoid all of that. So tomorrow could be kind of hairy, especially when we think about Japan being the largest importer of U.S. beef. There's definitely some ag connections with trade that if things go sideways and tariffs start getting thrown around, uh, you know, we could see agriculture take another hit, potentially. Hmm. Not good news. All right. Well, well who knows? It's not bad yeah. news yet. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of other, I don't have a good segue. So I guess other news coming out of Asia, um, as we've talked about on the podcast before, and I think on our, some of our social media sites, we've had producers reach out to us about this topic. And that is the African swine fever epidemic. We've had a couple of cases reported now coming out of China. And on Tuesday, their agricultural ministry ha- held an emergency meeting to discuss this African swine fever and figure out what they're going to do to eradicate the epidemic. So they said local authorities are going to coordinate and try to safeguard and, and work together to quarantine areas that have reports of African swine fever. Um, they're working on culling herds. They last week culled about a thousand hogs near the Shenyang version or Shenyang area, which is Providence, I guess it would be called, which is the capital of I can't pronounce it. Leon, Liao Ning. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce sure. Chinese. Sure. Um, just say it with confidence. Yeah. Okay. You know, then people just assume you know. Liao Ning. 
And, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so they banned transportation of hogs from some of those affected as where affected areas as well to try and curb that epidemic before it really spreads throughout the country and affects. I mean, they have a pretty large hog population. Yeah, largest in the world. Yeah. So we'll uh, continue to watch that. Hopefully. And, and Mike, I think we had a Twitter discussion with somebody the other day. It's not carried through humans, right? It just has right. to be from other hogs. Yep, it's carried by wild, well, it's carried by ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, and those ticks are often carried by wild hogs. And once it is in the blood, if a tick moves off a wild hog onto a hog who is in a, you know, confinement setup, um, then it can bite just a regular hog and spread it that way. Or you can, pigs, can catch African swine fever by eating the flesh of a diseased hog, which is a concern in a place with a lot of hogs in open lots like you still see in parts of rural China. Okay. That's gross. I didn't know that part. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. But people cannot be affected. Okay. Well, Hannah, did you have any other... Yeah, did you have any other news for today, Hannah? I don't have any other news, so if you guys are all out, we could get right into the markets. Let's do it, because we're going to have a great conversation about the global picture of soybeans. But before we do that, let's take a look at how the markets closed on the day. And, folks, our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, give them a shout. Harvest is getting close. Take some of that marketing risk off your plate by calling the Zaner Group. Give them a shout, 312-277-0050, or visit them on the web at zaner.com. We've got green on the screen in the grain. September corn up half a cent, closed at 371 and a quarter. The December contract also up a half to finish the day at 385 even. In soybeans, the August contract up four and a half cents, closed at 893 and three quarters. November up four and three quarter cents to finish at 910 and a half. In Chicago wheat, the September contract up one and three quarter cents, finished at five seventy even. December up one and a quarter to close the day at five ninety one and a quarter. Moving over on the livestock side, we've got mixed trade in live cattle with the August contract down twenty five cents to close at one oh nine eighty two fifty. The October up seven and a half to finish at one eleven even. Strength in feeder cattle, the August contract closed higher by eighty cents at one fifty sixty five. The September up a dollar oh two. 50 closed at 149.75 and weakness in the lean hog complex with the august contract down a dollar at 54.80 and the october down a dollar 57.50 to close at 48.40 and of course a quick look at the dairy market in class three milk august contract up four cents at 14.87 september up 12 Close the day at 15.71 before we jump into our soybean conversation let's get a word from our friends at latham high-tech seeds Well, joining me now is agronomy specialist Phil Long from Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, thank goodness we have you because Mike and I are no agronomists. And we've heard from a lot of producers and you've heard from a lot of producers about a problem going on right now called frog eye leaf spot disease. Fill us in, Phil. What is that disease and what does it do to soybeans? Sure. So it's a, it's a fungal disease. It's uh, something that we may not hear about quite as often. But, you know, given the conditions we've had, these nice uh, humid rainy conditions we seem to keep getting uh, fortunately i should say but uh, tends to favor this kind of disease uh, showing up in the, in the soybean canopy and the problem with it is it shows up in the top part of the canopy or the upper canopy on the new leaves which is the ones you want to protect you know usually and uh, that's where it starts to show up as a circular lesion it's it's a round little circle and it has a really dark purple 
uh, halo around the outside. So pretty pretty characteristic of that particular disease, but it, it can affect the leaves, stems, and even spread into the seeds as well. So it's something that you want to keep your eye on because it can cause a fair share of damage and only 30% infection on a leaf can, can cause yield loss. Phil, I think you know what my next question is going to be. Is there anything you can do to prevent or treat frog eye when you get it in your field? Yeah, so the best thing to do is, number one, know what it is. You know, that's what I always try to try to encourage people, know what you're diagnosing. But then, you know, it's, it's one that's spread by residue. So, you know, uh, no-till situations typically find it uh, worse in those cases or continuous soybean fields. If there are many of those out there, that's uh, something to maybe shy away from for a year or two, not, not trying that practice. Um, but just, uh, you know, protecting it all the way up to the really the green bean stage. So... R3 is a good time to treat if you're going to use a, a strobilurin-type fungicide on that disease, um, but just keeping it protected until those those seeds are to that, that full seed stage. All right, and any one of the agronomists there at Latham High Tech Seeds, I'm sure will be willing to help folks out if you have questions about your field, and you can reach them at 1-800-GO-LATHAM. Well, today we're catching up with Derek Hagwood, who's from Newport, Arkansas. He's a farmer there. He's part of USEC, or the United Soybean Export Council's board. So we've got a lot of things to talk to you about, Derek, but thank you, first of all, so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Derek, give us the background on your farm there in Newport. Well, I'm a fourth-generation farmer. Uh, I'm farming ground that... Um, my grandfather started farming in 1955 and we grow corn and soybeans rice grain sorghum and then we always leave some acres to to grow whatever the market it is calling for uh be it cotton or sesame seed or we've grown purple hole peas uh here in the in the south in the delta of arkansas we have a climate with a very long growing season so uh, we can be pretty diverse in the crops that we choose to grow now, Derek, I've got to ask you, because I'm sure we've got folks wondering this up here in the upper Midwest, how are crops looking down in the Delta this year? The crops are looking um, just the way that we want them to look. We we do irrigation on the majority of our acres here in the Delta because rainfall is very unpredictable and very undependable. So uh, our soybeans look just the way we thought they would. So does the corn. And the rice and the cotton, uh, it's it's going to be a average crop. It's going to be a little more expensive crop to produce this year because of the lack of rainfall. Uh, we've got some areas uh, from planting till harvest. As of today, we've gotten about two and a half inches the whole summer. So it's but we we take care of that with irrigation and uh, it's you know we've got a really dependable crop coming out of the south. Derek, when you look at areas there in the south, I'm not overly familiar with marketing options for you guys. Do you have mostly cooperatives in that area, private elevators, ethanol plants? I mean, what you got going on down there as far as kind of the retailer marketing side of things? The There's there's all those things that you just mentioned. We have uh, Riceland Foods is a huge co-op that we deliver all of our rice to. Uh, our, our soybeans, I would there to say right at 100% of our soy is exported. Mm. So uh, we deliver our soybeans to Memphis, to the river, and it's all exported from there. We, uh, there's many, many 
different companies there on the river, uh, large companies, small companies, and we we send all of our soy there. The corn, uh, we we usually have some really good bases, positive bases here where we're at because the poultry industry is so large in Arkansas. And I think my grain bins, I've got one set of grain bins that's eight miles away from a processing plant right there, a feed processing plant. So we can get up there around a quarter, 35 cents, up to 50 cents positive basis for our corn because it's so close and we can deliver uh, throughout the year, uh, deliver corn to to these uh, poultry, these feed mills. Uh, Derek, I think we've got some farmers up here salivating with the idea of 25 to 50 cent positive basis. We don't see that very often up here in Iowa. Uh, I want to talk about something. You mentioned your beans going to the river and then being exported. And, of course, you're on the Soybean Export Council, Export Council. When you look out at the big picture, we're hearing a lot about trade. What's your perspective of the overall international demand for American soybeans? Well, the the overall look that that I can that I can talk about is it's positive. The demand for U.S. soy continues to grow, and I'm excited to to represent USEC and soybean farmers that, because we have the most reliable, uh, most uh, efficient system here in the U.S. And people want our soybeans. We have uh, great intrinsic and extrinsic value. With USDA, and it's uh, it's it's an advantage that I personally take a lot of time going around the world talking about the benefits of buying U.S. soy. I mean, we have documented things about the amino acid profile and the protein content and things that that we're doing, and we also have the ability to ship it just about any way the customer could could possibly want. We can send it in. You know, from Panamax ships down to containers, uh, whatever they want. We can move it all over this, uh, the Midwest, all over the South through, uh, barges and rail and trucks. We just have a, an amazing infrastructure here in the U.S. that, that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Derek, let's talk about some of the hats you wear. So we're talking about your role right now with the USEC board. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. You mentioned you travel around a lot and, and get to promote U.S. soybeans, is that your main role with the U.S. USEC board? Yes, at the Commodity Classic this year, I was elected chairman of USEC, and um, it was an honor to be elected that, that my uh, my peers and my colleagues have put me in that position. And it's it's a lot of responsibility, but it's something that I truly enjoy doing, and it's it's something I can be very passionate about because it's it's I'm promoting this crop, this commodity that uh, takes care of my family, and so I've been to different places, been to China, of course, and been to India. That's a focus that we've been looking at. It's just this, such a huge market, and there's so many possibilities there. And USEC has not so much we've not made a huge change in where we're trying to promote U.S. soy, but we're focusing in on some basic markets, which, you know, to, to put that together in a, you know, we could talk about that all day. But what we're talking about is a is a growing population that that looking forward will need this U.S. soy to uh, further promote their their uh, 
animal ag industry, like poultry and pork and things like that. And places like India, Bangladesh, uh, these, these markets all over the world, we're really starting to spend a lot of time on that because the growth potential is so huge. And we want to be right there at the forefront of selling U.S. soy to these, these customers. And it's, uh, you know, there's, we can show them and it's pretty easy to show them these advantages of, of buying U.S. soy. And when you're talking about showing them the advantages, Derek, you mentioned earlier, U.S. soy has great intrinsic and extrinsic value. Could you tell us what you mean by that? What do those two terms mean in this context, intrinsic and extrinsic? Well, the intrinsic value would be, you know, the amino acid profile that we have documented proof that shows the digestibility of U.S. soy, that there's an advantage there, and that, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of different levels of protein that, you know, you can get uh, the, the, here in the South, we have a really high protein content because of the longer growing season. And a lot of soy is exported right out of the South right here because of the, the advantage we have of the Mississippi river. And that, that goes to the extrinsic value that we're talking about with the infrastructure, the infrastructure that we have here in the U S with, um, you know, the dependability of our government, the stability of, of this U.S. crop that comes out, you know, we've gone through some ups and downs in, in, uh, in yields all across this nation. But overall, we are an incre- we are incredibly dependable and incredibly reliable on getting that soy to the customer. And so, yeah, you can look at the, the internal components of the soy and we have advantages there over the rest of the world. And the and the external things that we're talking about as far as the this being here in the US and the the technology that we've developed, the the ability to ship, the ability to store uh in in the facilities we have here and then the huge amount of farmers that have on farm storage where we can deliver throughout the year. Whenever the market calls for it, we can deliver soy at any time during the year. Yeah, I mean we Derek, you and I were on a panel here back in a couple of weeks ago now in Colombia. So we, I mean, we got to hear this perspective from a lot of Latin American buyers, soybean buyers. But when you look at expanding markets, obviously right now is kind of a tense time and a lot of farmers are nervous about marketing their crops. Are there any expanding markets or markets that you see here in the future that are going to be large markets for U.S. soy? That's to look into my crystal ball. It's that would be, you know, I'd hate to say this definitely will be, but there are there are some great markets out there right now, really good potential. The EU, I think, will be continuing to buy U.S. soy and increase the amount that they buy. Uh, we've seen huge jumps in country like in countries like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Egypt. These these countries that you know, they're not China. They're not buying, you know, 20, 30, 40 million metric tons, but they're, they've gone from, you know, like Egypt's gone from 1 million tons to 2 million tons. And when, when you think of numbers like that, we just want to make sure that we don't miss something. And we spend a lot of time and effort researching and we, and that's one of the greatest things about USEC. We have boots on the ground in all these countries. We have, we have it divided into different regions, and 
we have people there that have been working in the soy industry for years and years and years. I'm talking 15, 20 years in different places, in, like in India. And so what, what a great thing, what a great resource that U.S. soy farmers have when we talk about developing these markets because we have experience, we have uh, the know-how and boots on the ground in these countries actually going and listening to what customers want. Now, Derek, I want to play devil's advocate for a second, and a cynic might look out at the world of international demand for soybeans and say, hey, why do we need people promoting American beans? If these countries want to buy protein, they've got to come to either us or Brazil. What's the value of having having USEC board members with your distributed network all around the world? Well, one thing that USEC does, and it's it's just growing – uh, exponentially within the organization is we are uh, promoting market access for U.S. soy. We talk about trade approvals in China, trade approvals in the EU. Uh, when when the when the U.S. farmer has issues with uh, you know weed control or uh, pest management of any kind, uh, the farmer we we go go out and we tell these seed companies, hey, we need a soybean that that we can you know control uh, pigweeds. That's a big issue here in the South. We need different formulation to spray on pigweeds so so we can continue to pr- produce this high quality crop. So organization like USEC, we're there in China. We have an office there in Beijing, and we have people in Shanghai. And we go government to government, and we say, look, here's the background on this. Here's here's the trait. We need this to continue to supply you with a with a supply of soy that you want. We, you don't want wheat seed in it. You don't want damage on it from pests, insects, and things like that. If we can spray this, and of course it all has to be vetted and gone over and said, you know, and shown that it's a safe product. We ha- we have people there that promote that market access. And so, if we have the latest greatest technology here in the states and 60% of our soy is exported, we have to guarantee and we have to make sure that we have those markets to sell it to. You know, we talk about all these different traits. We talk about you know, from Roundup Ready, Liberty, uh, Extends, all these different traits that U.S. soy has. We have there's, – there's, it doesn't just happen. China doesn't just say, yeah, we'll take that. EU doesn't just say, yeah, we'll take that. There's a lot of effort that goes in opening up these markets. Yeah, kind of the behind the scenes thing, which a lot of producers don't see on the ground, so to speak. Derek, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You bet. I've enjoyed it. Great conversation there with Derek. It's interesting to hear how beans look down there in the Delta. And I think bigger picture what the the soybean outlook is internationally. There is still a great amount of demand out there. Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, you know, USEC and a bunch of other commodity groups and trade groups work to try and expand those market access. It, it, I mean, from a producer standpoint, it sounds like we hear that a lot, like, oh, we need to expand market access, but what does that really mean? So I think Derek did a good job of breaking that down for us today. Absolutely. And folks, if you want to follow up on additional podcasts or get involved on our Twitter and Facebook pages, Hannah, where should they go? Mike, our listeners could head to 
Facebook or Twitter to go right to our social media pages. They can just search Ag News Daily or they could go to our website and search www.agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Mike and Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.